Welcome to another episode of the Marketing Analytics Show, the podcast that helps you get better at marketing analytics. This podcast is brought to you by Supermetrics. Over half a million marketers use Supermetrics to move data from popular marketing platforms such as Facebook, Google Analytics, and HubSpot to their favorite analytics, reporting, and data warehouse tools, including Google Sheets, Excel, Google Data Studio, Google BigQuery, and more. Give Supermetrics a spin and search a 14-day free trial at supermetrics.com. I'm your host, Anna Shutko, and today our guest here is Stefan Amel, who is a data privacy expert and a strategic advisor to multiple companies, including Mustard Data, Caden, and Volgius, to name a few. In this episode, you'll learn why ethical data collection is so important, especially when it comes to marketing data, what zero-party data concept is all about, and how companies can cultivate a user privacy-first culture. I hope you'll enjoy this episode. Hello, Stefan, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Anna. It's a great pleasure to be here. I'm very, very happy to have you here. And today's topic is very, very important for all the marketers out there. So we're going to be talking about privacy and security and how marketers can collect their data ethically from different sources. So my very first question to you, Stefan, is... Um, so before the data is analyzed, it obviously has to be collected in the right way. But why is this ethical data collection so important, especially in these days? Well, it's interesting because uh, marketing has always been about building trust. It's about building a relationship. And if the first thing we do is kind of play a little game or work around what the user really wants to do and wants to share with us, then we're, we're I think we're starting on the wrong foot. So, you know, full transparency, uh, getting consent and, and those aspects seems critical to me. And sadly, the way I, I see things evolving with the consent pop-ups and stuff like that, it's always asking about cookies. It's always asking about the technicalities of collecting the data or getting a permission because that's what the law requires. But it, I wish it was more about here's what we can offer you. Here's the benefits you're going to gain, not because we're using cookies or whatever else mean, ways of collecting data, but because we want to build a trusted relationship and, and, you know, you're the, you're the customer. You are important to us. We always say, you know, businesses pride themselves to say they are customer centric. So this is the very start of customer centricity. Great. And I really, really love how you mentioned that marketing is all about building trust. I definitely do agree with this statement. And mm -hmm. you've also touched upon cookies as, you know, sort of the technicalities of collecting the data, which is a perfect segue to my next question, which is what is the difference between legal data collection and ethical data collection? You've already partially answered this, but maybe if you could elaborate on this a bit more. Yeah, yeah. What I see currently is uh, most of the energy in the focus is, is put on having legal compliance. So, oh, we... we we have those pop-ups because we have to legally we we are we we have to do that and when you have a legal approach to data protection it means that you are looking at ways to mitigate the risk for the business so the legal approach is very much about risk mitigation 
Well, if you flip it on the other side and you have a, more of a, an ethical data collection approach and data protection and privacy, the mindset becomes different because you're constantly asking yourself, what do my users really want? What if I was in their shoes, what would be their reaction? So it, it, it's a bit odd because uh, it's one of the core principles of marketing is, is to put yourselves in the shoes of your consumers and your customers. And with all the emphasis on GDPR compliance and pop-ups and those things, I, I think we're losing a big chunk of, of that super important approach to marketing, which is uh, really thinking about the customer. Yeah, I definitely do agree with you that uh, the customer should be at the center of um, every single thought the marketing has. Mm -hmm. And I really also, I really, really love how you mentioned that the energy which is now put on, you know, legal compliances should actually be aimed towards, um, not not be aimed towards mitigating the risk for the business, but should be aimed towards actually making the whole approach much more ethical. Mm -hmm. So again, um, my next question in connection to this would be, uh, so if the marketer really wants to create privacy first culture, like you mentioned, instead of mitigating the risk for the business, they should try to instead focus on the customer's viewpoint more. What would the first steps here be? So what are these concrete steps marketers would need to take to make sure their companies are cultivating this right culture? Yeah, it, it, it's a big challenge because what we're facing is the overlap between uh, the, the legal uh, aspect, the technical aspect, which is super complex, and the marketing and analytics aspect of, of using the data in the right way and, and making sure that what we do is, is correct. Um, so finding people who are skilled at all three aspects, legal, technical, and marketing analysis, um, is, is almost impossible. Nobody in the, in the industry, uh, I, I don't know anyone who would be able to claim that they are mastering all of those aspects. It's just too complex. So, and, and we're not starting from scratch. If we were starting from scratch, I would say, oh, you need to pick and choose the right partners that are privacy and, and ethically aligned with your own core values as a business, but we're not starting from scratch. So I think one of the first steps uh, is to do a serious inventory inventory of what is the MarTech stack that you actually have? What are the numerous tools that you look at any website and there there's tons and tons of, of third-party tools that are being used. Plus internally, we use services and we, 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 we share data with so many different entities outside of the business. And even looking at internally, what is the data we have? So doing this big inventory of uh, what kind of data we have, what are the tools that we use? And, and we're most likely we, we will find that there are some of those solutions that are not really being used or maybe they are not aligned with what we want to do now versus what we did maybe a couple of years ago. Um, when you do that, in, uh, that, that survey of all the tools that you use, uh, even just looking at the website, it, it becomes complex because you, you can go with 
what you know you're using on a daily basis. You know, do an do the list. It's fairly easy. But at one point, you have to use some specialized tools to look at the website and uncover the tools or the tracking that is being done that you don't even know about, that you don't even know it's there because uh, you, at one point, you there was an integrated widget that was free and super cool. And, and when you look deeper, you realize that, okay, the widget is doing something useful, but it's also collecting data and sharing it with other parties that you don't even know about. Of course, now that GDPR has been in effect for a while, this tends to become less of an issue. But it's, it, I do uh, audits of websites and I find things that are absolutely incredible in terms of the cascades of data that is being shared left and right with entities that we don't even know about. So I think the starting point is Look at what is being used right now, and and to do that, you need yes, you need to uh, think about what you use, but also use specialized tools to do uh, a check of the website and and see what it, what it will uncover, and then from there go to the next step, which would be uh, really doing a, an impact assessment of do I really need those tools? What kind of data is collecting? Uh, is the data being collected? Uh, confidential, personal, uh, what is the level of privacy that should surround this data and so on. So that's, that's a huge task. It's, uh, it's quite, uh, quite an endeavor to, to, to go in, into this journey of trying to shift from how things used to be done and how things should be done in the future. But it's, it's super interesting to do. Oh, yeah, it definitely sounds like a very interesting process. And I also think that starting with a full review of what kind of data the company has is a really, really good first step. So when the companies start doing their inventorization process, in my opinion, they should also understand different data and data-related concepts. So my next question here would be, could you please explain to us what is a zero-party data concept? And then how is this data concept different from first and third-party data concepts? Yeah, so I think we're pretty familiar with the notion of third-party data, which is, you know, the, the Facebook and Google and all the other ad networks and so on, uh, collecting data on your, on, on your behalf. And keeping it private to them, but giving you a little glimpse, a little, you know, black box where you can, you can see part of the data. You don't see the raw data. You, you can still make use of it. So third party, we, we pretty much get it. And that's part of the big issue right now, uh, about the state of the industry, how it evolved and, and, and the problems that surrounds that. First party data is, very easy to understand. It's the data as an organization, it's the data you collect yourself, you have the responsibility to maintain and manage it and control it and, and so on. And you, you have some responsibilities also from a legal standpoint to, um, you know, uh, answer privacy requests from users if they want to have a copy of it or delete it. So that's the first party data. And the problem, and, and we've been, we heard about zero party data for a couple of years now, but I think right now it, it's reaching a, a, a level or a state where 
uh, the possibilities are becoming real. So the worry I have is that we hear a lot of agencies and solution providers and so on saying, oh, with the death of third-party cookies, you're gonna you're gonna have to focus more on collecting your own first-party data. But let's take a scenario. I'm a consumer and I want I'm I'm visiting a bunch of different websites, some that I trust, some that I trust less. But those sites where I I I have a good uh, relationship, I'm willing to create an account. I'm willing to share more information. So those organizations are happy because they are collecting first party data. Everything is fine. The problem is with the multiplication of first party data as a consumer that I interact with, all those organizations, they create their own copy of, of my data. They create their own perception and view of who I am and what I shared with them. With zero party data, as a consumer, I am the sole owner of my data. I decide when I want to share it, with whom I want to share it, to which extent, for how long, and so on. So I think a, a scenario is, is easier to understand for those who are not familiar with zero-party data. I own a dog. So this is a, a piece of data. This is one information. I own a dog. It's a golden retriever. She's a female, 12 years old. Um, she doesn't have much health issues and so on. If I, you know, do, uh, I go to the same store to purchase uh, food for my dog. They might want to be interested in what breed of dog, age, uh, because that will alter the type of food that I will purchase. So I could share that information with them. I most likely will share this similar information with my insurance company, but they don't, they, they, all they want to know is I own a dog. What is the breed? They don't care about the name, the gender, uh, you know, things like that. And maybe, uh, when I go to the vet, of course, the vet needs to have much more information about my dog. Uh, then I will share, uh, probably much more information about the health and age and gender and, and all those aspects. So with zero party data, I have one copy of the attributes of my dog that I share with three different parties. It's always the same dog, but I share different information based on the uh, usefulness and relevancy of that information. Now, sadly, the day my dog will pass away, I won't have to go to those three different organizations or partners, I would say. And tell them, okay, I don't own a dog anymore, or maybe I have a different dog now. I will simply, from my from my own zero-party data control, I will simply say, I don't want to share that information with all those different parties. So the example is pretty simple. It's my dog, three different parties. But imagine it's yourself with so much information and probably dozens, if not hundreds, of different websites that you interact with and share different information like Simple things like, I changed my email address. How, where do I change it? I mean, I, I will have eventually to go to dozens and hundreds of websites and go in my profile and say, hey, by the way, my email address is not the same anymore. If I relocate, uh, where does it make sense to change my address? 
not everywhere, but where it makes sense, it would be nice to be able to say, here you go. I just relocated to, new, to a new place. Here's the change. And I still want to do business with you. I trust you. So here's my data, but I still have the control over it. So maybe it's a, maybe it's a utopia. Maybe it's a dream, but I can tell you there are some, uh, some very interesting startups that are working specifically on solving this kind of issue of zero party data. The challenge is the network effect is you have to have a sufficiently large enough amount of people that will embrace zero party data and the brands that will trust that this is a new paradigm that makes sense for the future. And, and I think it's, it's how it should have been from the, from the start. Uh, it, we wouldn't be in a situation like we are today. And I think uh, it would be uh, much more beneficial for everyone, brands and consumers included. Excellent. I really, really love the dog example you provided. Thank you so much for sharing this. I think this is super, super useful for all the listeners out there. Mm -hmm. And uh, sort of related to the answer you've just given. Um, so uh, when I was listening to the Endless Coffee Cup podcast uh, episode with Matt Bailey, you've mentioned that you don't believe in anonymous data. And you shared a very interesting statistic there, uh, which was that it takes only 15 attributes to identify something like 99.98% of the people. Um, can you please explain why you don't believe in anonymous data? Yeah, I I, um, I was very lucky to uh, do an internship uh, in 1987 <laughs> to go back to a couple of years ago. But uh, anyway, I, I was uh, I graduated with in computer science and my internship was working with healthcare data. And even at the time, and, and by the way, I was super lucky because we had access to the Internet in 1987 because it was a research project. Uh, there was no web, but there was chat, uh, file transfer, news groups, uh, things like that, but no, no web at the time. Uh, but anyway, I, 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 I was involved in a research project looking at healthcare data, and we had very strict rules about what we could do with the data and how to make sure that it was uh, still anonymized. And maybe it was because of my computer science background, or maybe it was because it was a research project and the, the, it was part of the culture to care about the data. But then, I guess with the evolution, the, the internet, the web, the marketing took over and so on, maybe that, that sensibility to our data was, was lost along the way. Sadly, um, but the thing is, data is anonymous only until someone finds out how to crack it. it, it it's it's really like uh, the thief and in, in police. <laughs> it's really like hackers and and antivirus software. It's it's exactly the same thing. So data is anonymous only until someone finds a way, either because there's. Uh, something that is not right in the way the data is, is managed and stored and so on, or maybe because they find a new algorithm or enough power to crack the data and, and bring it back to a non-anonymous state. And so there's a couple of studies. Um, 
you know, I would have to dig the reference again, but just from the top of my head, there's that one that says 15 attributes are sufficient to, uh, to re-identify 99.98% uh, of the, of the people. There's another one where it says, uh, if you take the 150 top websites someone visits over a two week period, you're going to be able to uniquely identify that person. So you visit 100, your, your top 150 websites are different from my top 150 websites. And that creates some kind of signature. It's, it, the analogy I make oftentimes is, is DNA. DNA on its own is is very useful, obviously, from from a research purpose and so on. But it's harmless from an identity perspective uh, because if you just have the DNA but no other data, you cannot do much with it. But the problem is the DNA is a unique way. It's it's probably what is the most intimate and personal piece of data that we have. Our behavior online is, is like the DNA that we create, be it the 150 websites or 15 attributes. It's unique to us. It's a signature that nobody else shares. And things like the 15 attributes or 150 websites, they were assumed to be anonymous until someone somewhere found a way to say, hey, by the way, this is pretty unique. It's it, Think of figure, fingerprinting is is another thing, and and there are uh, mechanisms being put in place in browsers and so on to prevent fingerprinting. But if you take think of of Google, they they of course they are positioning themselves to say, oh, we, we want to we care about your privacy. Obviously, you know they all care about our privacy. Um, so we're going to block third party cookies. But the thing is, they don't even need the third-party cookies. They already have so many ways of tracking and, and identifying us, even if we delete our cookies or we block them or whatever, uh, without fingerprinting, just the 150 websites. The thing about 15 attributes is when you look at the um, the data aggregators, uh, especially in the U.S., there, there's a bunch of vendors that are priding themselves of saying, we have hundreds of attributes about millions of people. Well, even if they don't have the address or the name or things like that, they can still identify all of those people, even if they claim the data is harmless and anonymous. Uh, so to me, it's, it's, it's just a, a risk that is always there. And there are consequences to that. Uh, we could go into details, but we can imagine all kinds of consequences uh, when your uh, our information is is being explored and shared without our knowledge consent and control right Stefan thank you so much for sharing and uh, you've already mentioned lots and lots of really good tips on how marketers can improve their data handling policies throughout the episode but now um what if we talk about the mistakes part so what are the typical mistakes marketers make when they start working on improving the ways in which they handle customer data? Well, the, the most uh, obvious and, and the thing that I see most often is um, making, uh, spending time and energy deploying a consent management solution only to find that behind the scene there are 
uh, still so many things that are done in the wrong way. Uh, so I think that's that's probably the biggest mistake going on right now is the because the, the issue again back to what I mentioned in, early on is the overlap between legal, technical, and analysis and marketing. Um, legal will say, "Oh, you need a consent banner," and technical will say, "Yeah, sure, we can implement that," and they will put on the uh, the consent banner. But tying up all the little things around it is is actually super difficult it's probably it's much more difficult than actually doing an implementation of uh, any analytic solution out there uh, consent management is much much more complex than everything else I've done in my career uh, and, and I've been working on the web ever since 1991 when it came out it's much more complex so that this is the most obvious issue is putting a constant banner out there that actually does nothing. And I've seen it on many websites. Nice banner. The message is there. Hey, we're using cookies. We care about your privacy, blah, blah, blah. But when you open the cover and look behind the scene, you, you realize that it's, it's all BS. Um, and, and that that is very harmful to trust. It, it's just a... a a bomb waiting to explode uh, for any brand. So I think that's, for me, that's the biggest issue. Uh, the other thing I would say, the second one is, how do you go from, already there are many marketers who don't want to hear and know about JavaScript and tagging and you know all those those technical things. Uh, the... I still hear people in marketing that <laughs> sadly they, they they don't like numbers. <laughs> they just want to be creative. Um, but the reality is uh, marketing cannot be dissociated from from measurements and optimization. And in order to to understand that, you need to understand how the web works and how data is being collected and all those aspects. And conversely, you you have technical people that are really good at the te- technical aspects, but maybe they lack understanding of the business impact and uh, understanding the, the business side of things. Um, it's been like that since you know, the beginning of the web. And I, I think even in, in the early days of computer science, there was always that uh, gap between uh, business and IT uh, taken broadly or being really specific to to web development and so on. So I think this this is a reality and it's not getting any easier. It's getting much more complex. Uh in a way I feel like it's uh we're living uh kind of a, a, a go back going back to more of a computer science approach to marketing and and marketing overtaking computer science at the same time. So we need to find ways to to continue to work on uh, bringing those together in agreement and joy and happiness. <laughs> Perfect. And where can the audience find you if they would like to connect with you? I think the easiest way is simply to look for me on LinkedIn, Stéphane Amel on LinkedIn. You're going to find me very easily. And from there, you're going to be able to follow me on on Medium, where I publish some articles about uh, privacy and ethics in in marketing. And, uh, of course, Twitter and all the other ones. But easiest one is LinkedIn. 
Awesome, Stefan. Thank you so much for sharing all the useful tips and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Anna. That was a pleasure. And that's the end of today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. Before you go, make sure to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. If you'd like to kickstart your marketing analytics, check out the 14-day free trial at supermetrics.com. See you on the next episode of the Marketing Analytics Show.